This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 53 as we continue our summer sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. Regardless of text or topic, the only way that the Bible comes into focus is when we see it through the lens of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have already seen an example of preaching Christ in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. We have examined preaching Christ in the Psalms, and today we discover that we preach Christ in the prophets. There are numerous wonderful examples in prophetic literature where we could examine Christ and him crucified. But perhaps, there, perhaps there's no better illustration of preaching Christ in the prophets than in the 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53. It's to these 12 verses that we give our full attention this morning. So once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 53, I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 12. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 53 is a staggering prophecy. There have been many who have called it the first gospel. 
The reason it's called the first gospel is because it predates the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by 700 years. Stop and think about that. America will soon celebrate her 243rd birthday. And the time between Isaiah and the writing of the New Testament gospels is three times longer than we are in our existence. 700 years. This realization calls John MacArthur to write that Isaiah 53 is the single greatest passage in all the Bible to prove the divine inspiration of Scripture. Now, why would he make such a bold statement like that? Because the realization is the prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before the coming of Christ, and yet he portrays with vivid clarity and accuracy the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord. Only through divine inspiration can this be accomplished. Isaiah is the greatest prophet who is quoted the most numerous times in the New Testament. Out of all the prophets in the Bible, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament some 66 references in 27 chapters, 27 books. The chapter of Isaiah 53, it is quoted at least seven times in the 27 books of the New Testament. We read a portion of Isaiah 53 in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 1 Peter. It seems that this chapter is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. You may recall that this is the portion of Scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading as he made his way down the Gaza Road. Isaiah 53 is sufficient for salvation. That if for some reason God did not give us the New Testament, in Isaiah 53, we would still have the gospel of Christ. You may recall that it is Philip who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, runs beside that chariot going down the Gaza Road. And he asks the Ethiopian eunuch a question. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? He orders for the chariot to be stopped. Philip went up into the chariot and with that very passage of Scripture began to explain the good news of Jesus. The Ethiopian man became a believer that day. They stopped for there was a body of water. They both went down into the water and Philip baptized the Ethiopian and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing in his newfound faith. Church historians tell us that it's because of the testimony of the Ethiopian eunuch that evangelism took place in that country and continent for Christ. This is an amazing, staggering prophecy. Perhaps the greatest thing I can tell you about Isaiah chapter 53 is this. That in this chapter, God answers one of the most ancient, critical questions that have, that's ever been on the mind of man or the lips of man. And the question is this, how can sinful humanity be declared right before a holy God? Isaiah chapter 53 answers that question. For in Isaiah chapter 53, we find the graphic humiliation of Christ. Verses 1 to 3. We find the gory crucifixion of Christ. Verses 4 to 9. And we find the glorious resurrection of Christ. Verses 10 to 12. 
Isaiah begins with this graphic humiliation of Christ. As early as Isaiah chapter 42, the servant of the Lord is introduced. The title servant of the Lord, or more commonly, the suffering servant of Isaiah, is found for us in Isaiah chapter 42, in Isaiah chapter 49, in Isaiah chapter 52, and in Isaiah chapter 53. In our passage, this servant of the Lord is vividly and accurately portrayed for us to see. Just a few verses earlier than what I read for you in your hearing, you find Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And there we read that the servant of the Lord will act wisely. That word wisely can also be understood as successfully. That the servant of the Lord, whoever he may be, that the servant of the Lord is one who will act successfully. He will accomplish what he set forth to accomplish. Whatever the God-given task may be, it will be completed in the servant of the Lord. It's this question of the identity of the servant of the Lord that's always been on the lips of individuals. Even the Ethiopian eunuch asked the question, tell me, please, sir, who is this author talking about, himself or somebody else? Who is this servant of the Lord? Well, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it tells us that the servant of the Lord will succeed. When you hear those words, those words must echo from Calvary's hill. For Jesus will declare on Mount Calvary to Telestai, it is finished. It is accomplished. The job is done. What Jesus had been sent to do, he did, and he did it successfully. Even as you hear these words of how the servant of the Lord will succeed, he will act wisely. You see Jesus dangling from a cross of wood. And Jesus will declare, it is finished. It is accomplished. Also, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it reads that this servant of the Lord is high, exalted, lifted up, raised up. The only other place where Isaiah uses that kind of terminology is Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I said, woe is me, I am undone, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What Isaiah tells us in 52 verse 13 is that this servant of the Lord must be God of very God. He must be God. He uses, he doesn't use the language of God in the flesh, but that's what he's describing. That this God will be humiliated, for he will step out of heaven and step into earth. And when he is humiliated, and when he steps into earth, he will be disfigured. And he will be marred beyond all human recognition. Friend, that's a description, that's a portrait of crucifixion. Now I realize that Jesus is not the only one to have ever been crucified. No, those barbaric Romans, they used crucifixion hundreds upon hundreds of times. But you must agree with me that Jesus is the only one who had said of him that he died for the sins of the world. So, because Jesus bore the sins of the redeemed, he must have been disfigured beyond all human recognition. He must have been marred To the point, according to our passage, that men turn their faces from him. Jesus was burdened. He was disfigured. Not so much 
by the whipping and scourging of the cat of nine tails, but by the fact that he was bearing upon his body your sins and mine. And he was bearing upon his body the sins of all the redeemed so that he must have been disfigured beyond all human recognition. He must have been marred beyond any capacity for us to look upon him. And Isaiah says that this one grew up in front of us as a tender shoot. The word is actually a sucker branch, which means he was regarded as useless. What do you do with a sucker branch? You break it off, you throw it away. It's a useless twig. And Isaiah the prophet says that this servant of the Lord was regarded as useless. Just to be thrown away and discarded. You may even say he was born in a barn and raised in obscurity. He came from that no-name town of Nazareth. He was raised amongst poverty. There was nothing in him that would attract us to him. There was no royalty. There was no nobility. He didn't have star-studded good looks. He was not elevated in the culture of Judaism and Israel of the first century. There was nothing that would esteem him. There was nothing that would draw us to him. Nothing in his countenance that we would desire him. He was a nobody. This suffering servant, this servant of the Lord was one that was rejected, despised. Men and women, boys and girls turned their face from him because in his humiliation, he was a disgrace. It was beyond what anybody could take in and see. He was humiliated. The Apostle Paul will say the very same thing with different words. When he says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, taking on the form of a human. He made himself obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. You hear the humiliation of Christ in the opening few lines of this sacred text of Isaiah 53. And the prophet is so convinced that the humiliation of Christ will take place, he speaks a prophetic word using past tense verbs. He speaks something that will happen in the past tense as if it's already taken place. And that's the way he does it to communicate the sincerity and the confidence that he has that this will happen. That the servant of the Lord will be humiliated. He will be despised and rejected. He will be a man of sorrows. He does not say that this servant of the Lord will be despised. He said he was despised. Not will be rejected. He was rejected. Not he will grow up, but he did grow up as a tender shoot. Not that he will be, but he was. He speaks with such confidence that Isaiah, looking through the corridors of time, realizes that what's going to take place 700 years after the prophecy, he speaks of it in past tense as if it had already happened. You and I come to Isaiah 53 and we see the humiliation of Christ. It is a graphic humiliation of Christ. But secondly, there's also the gory crucifixion of Christ. It was John MacArthur who reminds us that 
the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the Bible. The Bible has 66 books in it. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. The Bible is divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 39 books of the Old Testament. There are 27 books of the New Testament in the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are about God's judgment and condemnation. The last 27 chapters are about God's amazing salvation that he will accomplish for his people. And John MacArthur says that if you uh, dive a little bit deeper into those last 27 chapters, you will three, you will see, uh, three sets of nine chapters each. In the first nine chapter set, you will discover God's salvation from all of the earthly enemies. In the last nine chapter set, you'll see salvation that'll be given to all of creation. But in the middle nine chapter set, you will find salvation for sinners from their sin. And it's here in this middle section that you and I discover Isaiah chapter 53. And once again, if you dive a little bit deeper in the middle of that midsection of, of, of uh, the last 27 books of Isaiah, the very middle of that, you will come down to Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4, 5, and 6. It is as if God is saying, let me drill down to a focal point. Let me point you as if you cannot miss the salvific significance of what this prophecy is all about. So God says, let me just keep on honing in and, 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 and drilling down to Isaiah chapter 53, verses four, five, and six. Did you hear what the prophet said in those three verses? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah wants us to know the servant of the Lord and surely this servant of Yahweh, he took up our infirmities. He took up, he picked up, he bore them upon himself. He took up our infirmity. Yes, that means sickness, but it's disease and death. All of the effects of the fall. And all of us are completely and utterly sinful. And the way we know we are sinful is because our body aches and we get diseased and, and we get uncomfortable and we die. And the reason we know that we are utterly, completely sinful is because all of us one day will face a death date. And here Isaiah says the servant of the Lord picked up all that disease, picked up all that cancer, picked up all that sickness, picked up all that sin sick soul, picked up all that death upon himself. He says, surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. The sickness, the setback, the sorrow, the sadness that is part and parcel with the human condition. The servant of the Lord took it upon himself. This opening line shouts, about substitutionary atonement. That Jesus took our place, died in our stead. That he died so that we might live. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. The word stricken means hit violently. This suffering servant was hit violently by God. Whoa, time out. I thought Jesus was hit violently by Roman soldiers. 
What Isaiah is telling us is that the suffering servant will die not because of the will of the Romans, not because of the will of the Jews. This suffering servant will die because of the will of God. Later he will say it is God's will to crush him. Now why would God want to crush the suffering servant? Because God knows that this suffering servant will die so that you may live. And because of his amazing, abundant love for you, beloved, for you, my brother, for you, my sister, because of his amazing love for you, this suffering servant will be crushed. Hit violently, stricken by God, smitten by him. The word smitten means severely beaten and afflicted. The word afflicted means degraded below a human When you put all of these descriptions together of being stricken and smitten and afflicted, it is is a vivid portrait of crucifixion. Surely he, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was pierced through his wrist and his feet by rusty spikes, nails. And he was pierced for our transgression. That word transgression means rebellion. Because we have a rebellious heart, because we have a bent towards sinfulness, because we are rampant in our rebellion, this suffering servant dies in our stead. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The word iniquity means twistedness or bentness. It's the portrait of an individual being loaded down under a heavy load of bricks. And because the load is so cumbersome that the individual is bent or twisted under that heavy load of bricks, and here Isaiah says that this suffering servant will take that load of bricks upon himself, that our sinfulness loads us down. It becomes cumbersome to the point that our very heart is bent and twisted away from God. Yet the suffering servant, Jesus himself, will come and he will lighten our load and take that off of us and place it upon himself he was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquity and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him once again that sweet swap of salvation somehow he'll be punished and we'll be given peace peace with God peace with self and peace with fellow man and by his wounds we will be healed this is a portrait of the crucifixion of Jesus it is a gory description of the crucifixion and then in verse 6 Isaiah describes us as dumb small-brained sheep now wait a minute can't you describe us as something macho can't you describe us as something strong why do you want to call us sheep Because that accurately portrays who we are. Dumb, small-brained sheep. In my first pastorate, there was a sheep farmer in the church. His name was Brian. And one morning, I went to the farm to watch Brian work. I asked him what time he wanted me to be there. He had the audacity to tell me to be there at 5 a.m. I didn't even know 5 a.m. existed at that time. I got up. I went to the farm. I'll never forget some of the things I learned that day. In fact, what I learned in those few hours was greater than what I learned in some of my seminary classes throughout all the 15 weeks of the semester. I remember one of the first things that Brian told me is you need to understand that sheep do what sheep do. It's a trite statement, but it's true. 
Sheep do what sheep do. I'll never forget that when Brian walked in, he had uh, hundreds and hundreds of sheep in the barn. And I know that they're dumb, and I know that they're small-brained, but this much they got going for them, they recognized their shepherd. Brian walked in, and not only did they recognize his voice, but they also recognized his walk, his gait, his stride. As soon as he walked in, they perked up. Now, there were other farmers, there were other servants that were there, other hired hands and hired farmers, but they didn't pay much attention to them, definitely did not pay attention to me. But when Brian walked in, those sheep perked up. They recognized his gait. They recognized his voice. I asked him, I said, do you think I can fool them? He said, nope, but you can try. So I tried. I tried to sound just like Brian, as country Kentucky redneck as I could. I tried to sound just like Brian. I tried to walk just like him, tried to have his same strut, tried to have his same stride, but I could not fool those sheep. Oh, my mind began to race about all the applications to your life and mine. How we, as sheep, we may be dumb and small minded, but we ought to know who the shepherd is, and we ought not to be fooled by some imitator of the shepherd who comes in and tries to talk a certain way or walk a certain way. No, there's only one Jesus and he cannot be duplicated. Oh, I watched how Brian uh, began to go around, he and the other hired men, and they began to give shots to those sheep. I asked him, I said, what are you doing now? He said, well, I got to give them their vitamins and that's what this shot is. I realized that those sheep were his livelihood He couldn't afford for them to get sick and to die. He also told me, and I quote, these creatures can't ward off anything. They can't even fight off a common cold. He said, I can't afford for them to get sick. If one of them gets sick, it'll spread throughout the entire flock. Once again, my mind starts racing. I begin to think how the good shepherd comes in and he gives us the vitamins that we need on a daily basis so we can ward off the enemy and the infection of the adversary. And how if one of us gets sick, if we're not careful, spiritually speaking, it can spread all throughout the congregation. Oh, I was learning so much. I was walking around. And then he told me, he said, now we've got to take these sheep from the barn over to that other pasture. I said, all right, that's not a problem at all. How do we do it? And he said, well, you need to know I can't drive them like I drive cattle. No, I've got to lead them. But as I lead them, my head has to be on a swivel. Because even though most of them will follow me, there'll be a few that go astray. And I'll have to make sure that I get one of the other farmers to go over there and get them and bring them back into the fold. Oh, brothers and sisters, can I tell you my mind was racing in that moment? I was thinking, yes, that's a portrait of Jesus. Jesus leads us. And yet as he leads us, his head is on a swivel. He's looking around for those sheep that go astray. And when you go astray, when I go astray, it is Jesus. Or as he dispatches his angels who come and they attend us and get us back into the straight and narrow. Oh, there were so many images of how powerful. And and I, I walked away that day. And I knew that these sheep were Brian's livelihood. I mean, he had to feed them. He had to take care of them. 
But I also walked away convinced that that shepherd loved those sheep. And he cared for them. So he led them and he fed them. And he guided them where he knew they needed to go. Once again, that's what God does for us. We are like sheep. And sheep do (laughs) what sheep do. But our text says that we like sheep have gone astray. Let me ask you this morning, what do you think it would look like today for sheep to go astray? What would it look like if sheep went astray today? Well, it may look something like this. You know, today there are some sheep, they make a lot of noise. They make a lot of noise and they garner the attention of other sheep. There are some sheep today who act as if the shepherd doesn't even exist. There are some sheep today that act as if the shepherd has no authority over their lives. There are some sheep that are trying to convince other sheep that they don't like the shepherd's definition of marriage. And so they are going to redefine what marriage is. And so some of these sheep have appointed open-minded sheep as judges. And even though those judges think they have a big brain, you and I know that all sheep have small brains. And so these small-brained, open-minded judges, they make verdicts on various cases. And sometimes the cases go all the way to the sheepish Supreme Court. And I got to be honest with you. I don't think that nine small-minded, dumb sheep can take the place of the shepherd. And yet the sheepish Supreme Court makes decisions and some of those decisions have redefined what marriage is. You know, there are some sheep that are just shacking up with other sheep today. Now, the reason they do that is because they don't want to commit themselves to another sheep. They kind of want to roam the pasture hills, if you know what I mean. They don't want to tie themselves down in commitment, so some sheep just shack up with other sheep. When sheep go astray today, let me tell you what happens. There's some sheep that get the idea that there is a shepherd-given right to kill some of those precious lambs before that lamb is born. Listen, I know that sounds animalistic. I know that sounds barbaric. But there are some sheep in some flocks where this is not only permitted, but it's celebrated. That's what happens when sheep go astray. You know, today when sheep go astray, what what happens is that some sheep snub their noses at other sheep just because of the color of their wool. That's right. There's some white sheep that don't like black sheep. There's some black sheep that don't like white sheep. And I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. Because underneath the wool, we're all pretty much the same. Oh, when sheep go astray today, there's some sheep that'll kill other sheep for no reason. They'll just be walking up and down the hillside. They'll be walking up and down a populated area and they'll just start shooting each other. They'll just start killing each other for no reason at all. Let me tell you, when sheep go astray, they get wild. When sheep go astray, they become lustful. 
There are some sheep that stare and gawk at other sheep in inappropriate ways. Can you believe that? There are some sheep that get greedy. There are some sheep that become arrogant. There are some sheep that are completely destructive. Some sheep that are overwhelmingly rebellious all because sheep have a tendency to go astray. So what's the shepherd do with sheep that go astray? Isaiah tells us. Isaiah says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That the Lord laid on the servant who was suffering in Isaiah. The Lord laid on the suffering servant the iniquity, the bentness, the twistedness of all of us sheep who have gone astray. Now the Apostle Paul will echo these words with different words. When he says in the Corinthian correspondence that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it means when it says that he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, the suffering servant who knew no sin became sin for us. What does it mean when when we read that Jesus became sin? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. There's no greater heresy in the church than that. Jesus has never become a sinner. What it does mean is that Jesus is the sin bearer. That on the cross, he bore the penalty of all the sin of all the redeemed. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became the sin bearer for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, that God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed all the sins of the redeemed. Let me say it another way. That God treated Jesus as if Jesus had lived my life. And God treated Jesus as if Jesus had lived your life so that God could treat you and me as if we had lived the life of Jesus. Now a hearty amen was right there for you for the taking and you missed right over it. Let me say that again. What it means for Jesus to have laid upon him the iniquity of us all is that God treated Jesus as if Jesus had lived my life and your life so that God could treat us as if we had lived the righteous, innocent life of Jesus Christ. You and I call that the sweet swap of salvation. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his holiness. We We give Jesus our perversion. He gives us his purity. We give Jesus all of our rags. He gives us all of his righteousness. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what God does with with sheep that go astray. Because this answers one of those great questions of antiquity. How can sinful men and women, boys and girls, be declared right in the eyes of God? God, who is just, must pay for sin. And because he is merciful, Merciful, he makes the payment for us. So he laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So the hymn writer can say, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. All of your bentness, all of your twistedness, all of your sinfulness, all of your rebellion was nailed upon Jesus, placed upon him, and he bore it so that you might live. This, my friends, is the gory crucifixion of Christ. But also in Isaiah 53, not only do you see the graphic humiliation of Christ and the gory crucifixion of Christ, but you also see the glorious resurrection of Christ. Verses 10, 11, and 12. The servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, was killed, crushed. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the righteous and the rich. Even though Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord had done nothing wrong. In fact, Isaiah says he was perfect. There was no violence in his hands. There was no evil word from his lips. This suffering servant had done nothing wrong, and yet he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich. Once again, how can Isaiah know this apart from divine inspiration? Because in the days of Jesus, whenever a person was crucified, the Romans would take that dead body of the criminal and typically they would throw that dead body into the inferno called Gehenna. But God the Father said, you're not going to do that with my son. So Jesus' dead body was taken down off the cross and given by permission to a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea placed the dead body of Jesus in a borrowed grave. Because Isaiah foretold some 700 years before the coming of Christ that Jesus would die a criminal's death and yet his body would not be discarded. In fact, it would be buried with the rich. In verse 10, it was God's will to crush him. Yet the Lord will prolong his days. This one who is killed and cut off, he will have the light of life. Friend, what does that mean? That's got to mean resurrection. I mean, that's got to mean resurrection. That God is going to prolong his days. Wait a minute. His days were cut off. He was killed. He was not in the land of the living. And yet, though he was killed, yet God will prolong his days. That must mean resurrection. That the one who bore the sin of many, he will see the light of life. That's got to be resurrection. It is a glorious resurrection. And you and I know the gospel story, don't we? We know that on that Friday, Jesus was crucified. He was dangling between two thieves. He declared, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up the ghost. They took down his dead body, placed him into a borrowed grave. Borrowed because he wasn't going to stay there very long. He was in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. He was in the grave for a few hours on Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, on that first Sunday, Jesus rose victorious. And as he walked out of the grave, he crushed death to death. He was victorious so that you and I could have the spoils of victory. So you and I could have eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. My friends, this is the first gospel. This is the amazing gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was slain, he was raised from the dead on the third day. 
And he who bore the sins of many is making intercession for the transgressors. That's the last line of Isaiah 53. The last line of verse 12 says that he bore the sins of many. We know it's many because not everybody is a Christian. Not everybody is saved, but anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He bore every sin of the many. He bore every sin of the redeemed. And when he was raised from the dead, he ascended into the heavens. And what is Jesus doing right now? He's making intercession for the transgressors. Right now. That's another amen moment. You just missed it. Right now. Jesus is praying for you, beloved. Jesus is praying for you, Christian. Jesus is interceding for you right now. He is interceding for the transgressors. I have been saved from my sin, and yet I'm still a sinner. I've been saved from my transgressions, yet I'm still a transgressor. Because I know that one day, what I know by faith, I shall know by sight. And even now, right now, Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for me as I preach. He's praying for me as I live my life of holiness. He's praying for me as I try to be a good under-shepherd to this flock. Jesus is praying not just for me, but for all those who believe. And right now, Jesus is praying for you. And you know, he's going to pray for you until the Father looks at the Son and says, Go get my church. And Jesus, the suffering servant, he will mount that white horse. He'll peel back the clouds. He'll come and he'll descend upon us. And we who are dead in Christ will be raised first. And we who are still alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. Because I'm telling you, friend, one day the trumpet will sound. One day Jesus will descend. One day Jesus will come with his holy entourage. And one day we will be with him both now and forevermore. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to come back. If the father's going to say to his son, stop praying and go get him. And I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that day. You and I come to Isaiah 53. It is the first gospel. It predates Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by 700 years. And yet, with vivid clarity, Isaiah tells us that the suffering servant, Jesus himself, he will experience a graphic humiliation. And he will endure a gory crucifixion. And he will ensure a glorious resurrection for all the redeemed. Friend, the invitation is simple today. First, if you've never trusted this Jesus as your Savior, today, I want you to listen to me. Don't move around. Don't move around. Don't move around. Today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And when that song is sung, I want you to come down front. Take me or one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need this Jesus I need to lean upon him. I need to trust him. I need for him to take away the rebellion that's in my heart. And friend, if that's you, today can be the day when a sinful man or a sinful woman 
or a sinful boy or a sinful girl is made right before a holy God. Today, that can happen. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I urge you to come forward, place your trust and hope in Christ. If you're here today, secondly, if you're here today and you are a believer, you've been trusting Jesus for years. Friend, I want you to walk out of here so convinced that Jesus is Christ that you can't be quiet. You've seen too much and now you've heard too much for you to be silent. I want you to walk out of here so convinced that Jesus is a suffering servant. I want you to walk out of here so convinced that he is the servant of the Lord. I want you to walk out of here so convinced that when you bump into an Ethiopian eunuch, when you bump into somebody who's uh, just in a chariot down the road, and when the Spirit of God tells you to chase that chariot, and you get there, and they're reading this passage of Scripture, and the Ethiopian says to you, please tell me, sir, madam, who is the author talking about, himself or somebody else? And then... Like Philip, beginning with that very passage of Scripture, you tell them the good news about Jesus. Because if you're convinced about it, you can't be quiet. If you're convinced about it, you've got to tell. Because you've seen too much and you've heard too much to be quiet. So church, as the Spirit of God prompts you to respond, you respond in obedience unto him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this holy invitation. We pray that you will move. And Lord, it's not if somebody is lost, but since somebody is lost in this house, I pray that that person hears the good gospel and responds in faith. And Father, I know I'm speaking to quite a few believers. Help us to be so convinced that you're Christ, that we walk out of here eager to talk about Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.